I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start our episode today, this is just a reminder, History Hack does have a Patreon account and all of your donations are gratefully appreciated. There's lots of perks on there, secret groups on Facebook. Do get involved. We would love to see more of you. Enjoy the episode today. Hello and welcome to another History Hack. Um, it's Lockie in the house, unusual voice possibly for this. Alex is with me. I haven't been given free reign on this one, but Boaty <laughs> Week continues. How are you doing, Alex? Boaty Week continues. It's awesome. You are getting free reign soon, aren't you? Because it's well, rugby history coming up and we're all like, Lockie can have yeah. it. <laughs> egg, egg chasing podcast now. Yes. <laughs> all yours, my friend. Yeah, we are. This is our this is our day of ancient boatiness today. And there's only one place to go, really. This chap has been on numerous times already. And we always make him talk about what we want to talk about and not what actually he does, which is ancient boaty things. So Owen Rees is back. Hey, Owen. Hiya. Thanks for having me back. Your book is so good. It's on sale in Greece. Well, if, if, if the Greeks are reading it, it must be good. Well, it's <laughs> it their history good. and they want it. So everybody should buy it. We're going to freestyle today around ancient Greek boatiness, aren't we? Um, because you said there's a lot to say and there's a lot of things to cover, but we're not going to be doing like an intricate history. Like tomorrow, we're going to be talking to Kate Jameson about the Battle of, Co- uh, Battle of the Nile. And that's going to be like one battle broken down. We don't do that with ancient boats, do we? No, 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 we don't. Um, especially Greek uh, naval warfare. You just can't do it. Um, the evidence is too scatty. Um, a lot of it is conjecture um, and some really dodgy evidence. Um, there's a lot of politics involved, actually, in like the, the way the Greeks wrote about naval warfare in particular. So no, we can't go into that kind of intricacies. But naval warfare in the ancient Greek world gets ignored a lot. So I couldn't. I think if you ask someone, didn't you? Like if you, Lockie and I were like, what are we going to talk about before we saw the notes? And we went, well, Salamis, basically, because that's what everyone knows, isn't it? That's a famous naval battle um, with the Persians. Persian Armada in that is the largest Armada seen in Europe till the D-Day landings. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, it is. I always like to throw that in um, because... There's this kind of, uh, yeah, there's this idea that um, naval warfare in the ancient world is very much a secondary thing. Um, And people focus on land battles in particular. But when you look at the numbers involved in naval battles, it's just much larger. They're much larger affairs. More people are involved. So um, the Persian numbers are, of course, probably an exaggeration. Herodotus 
who was our main source for the Persian Wars, is notoriously loose with his figures. Um, however, if you add up the armada of Xerxes um, and his invasion of Greece, if you add up all the ships and all the troop transporters that are said to go with it, it is, I think it's like about 50 off the D-Day landings. Um, so, you know, you kind of compare that to, uh, it wasn't even 200 of the Spanish armada, um, no. you know, kind of comparatively. So even if you accept Herodotus as exaggerating, um, it's still a massive armada that Europe basically doesn't see. Uh, the European theatre does not see an armada like this again, uh, literally until the D-Day landings. What's this battle about? So the Battle of Salamis is about, um, in terms of uh, the war, which is this invasion by the Persians of Greece, um, in the kind of timeline that people might be uh, more aware of, uh, the Battle of Thermopylae, the famous stand at Thermopylae, um, with the uh, seven odd thousand Greeks, uh, has already happened. So the Spartan force, led force, has fallen. Donidas has dramatically died. Gerard Butler has gone. He's gone. All of those fake Spartans with six packs that didn't really exist have gone. They have all gone. They have all. I forgot you've had Rule Caninodike on. We Uh, have, yeah. We've completely (laughs) obliterated the Spartans on this podcast. So those weedy little frauds, the the Spartans are gone. That's exactly (laughs) what it is. Um, The six packs are no longer rippling. Um, The, yeah, so that battle has occurred on land. Now, what a lot of people aren't necessarily aware of is at the exact same time that land battle is going on, the same three days that land battle is going on, there is a naval conflict occurring off the coast of Thermopylae at a, a, an area called Artemisium. So this is basically the, the logistical support of the two land forces. So there's the Persian Armada and there's the Greek um, fleet that is trying to support the Greek troops at Thermopylae. They spend three days at loggerheads and it basically comes to a resounding draw. So the Greeks do retreat only after they hear that Thermopylae has fallen. It's basically Jutland, right? <laughs> I think that's pretty All fair. All that effort and no winner is what you're yeah. saying. Yeah. Um, yeah, it definitely is. It's, it's very, it always reminds me of, um, you know, uh, in sort of FA Cup talking football now, uh, you know, the FA Cup where like a Division 2 team gets a draw so they get a replay and that's a win. Yeah, yeah. But to your Chelsea's and your Liverpool's and that, that's that's just awful. Um, that's kind of where we are. They played to Burnley and they, they cheer like they've won when it's one all. Yeah. Just, just just to be clear, the Greeks are the lower level team in that in that <laughs> action. They, they always are. Right? <laughs> they, they are Burnley. Are. It reminds me of, um, I was watching a stand-up routine by a historian. It may have even been Rule Caninodite, oddly enough, um, where he talks about the Persian Wars. And, you know, uh, it's more about Marathon. So the Athenians standing up to Persia. And he basically compares it to the town of Milton Keynes trying to take on China. (laughs) This is the the contrast between the two forces. um, And it's always stuck in my mind. Um, So... Artemisium is kind of a stalemate. The Greeks lose a lot of ships, but they do survive it and they have a fleet intact. They actually withdraw because, of course, the land forces of Xerxes are now preparing to move south. They have to regroup. They regroup round um, uh, Attica, peninsula of um, Greece, and they kind of regroup on the island of Salamis, which is just off the coast of Athens. 
And it's at that point where basically Athens decides to evacuate. So the city of Athens empties. They leave a small force on the Acropolis, the big hilltop um, with the temples on top uh, in Athens. But the rest of them evacuate and they evacuate the island of Salamis. The Persians actually go into Athens and um, like set fire to bits of it. Um, quite a horrific and psychologically damaging moment for the Athenians in particular, because from the island of Salamis, you would have been able to see Athens on fire. Ouch. Yeah. So this is the place where they're now deciding, what the hell do we do? Now, Athens, who is watching their city burn, has a kind of a trump up their sleeve, uh, sort of an ace card up their sleeve when discussing with the Greeks what to do. Um, everyone's panicking about what to do with the Persians. So many of the Peloponnesians, which is the southern area of Greece, Sparta, Corinth, Argos, these kind of cities, they want to leave. They want to get the hell out and protect their cities. But if they do that, the Greek fleet falls apart, which is the only thing they really have still in existence that could hold out in any way. Um, Athens obviously doesn't want them to leave. Um, so they actually say, either you stay and fight at Salamis with us right now, or we will take all our ships, which is 50% of the Greek force. We will take all our ships and go to Italy. Forever. <laughs> I know, you'd be pretty pissed off if they were all just going to leg it and leave you. Well, this is precisely it. Basically, the big Greek plan after Thermopylae was to build a wall. Uh, and they were going to build a wall across uh, the uh, Corinthian Isthmus, which is a tiny little narrow bit that connects the south of Greece, Peloponnese, with Attica. They're basically going to build a wall across that and go, ha, get past that. Is this where um, Donald Trump got the idea from? There's some yes. bad ideas floating around at the time, because Xerxes was talking about building bridges across the Dardanelles and, and, and things around this sort of time. And... Oh, Xerxes did not just talk about it. <laughs> he did it. Um, he built a bridge out of his ships. Um, he connected ships uh, side by side um, with huge ropes. Herodotus goes into massive descriptions about the ropes that, that combine these ships together. Uh, inevitably, the first bridge broke up because of uh, weather. And then the story goes, he got very angry and had the sea whipped for being naughty, basically. Um, probably a bit of hyperbole on the side of the Greek writers here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he did. He also um, carved a canal through uh, around the uh, peninsula of Mount Athos, which is in the north of Greece, um, in Chalcidice, um, because there were storms there and an earlier Persian fleet had been destroyed in that area. So he's uh, just cut a channel through, problem solved. Massive undertaking. Xerxes often gets this kind of mad scientist slash uh, crazy pampered rich man kind yeah. of, uh, thing about him. You know, he's an idiot who doesn't really know what he's doing, but he's got loads of money. And that's really unfair. Like Mario Balotelli of the ancient world, right? Yes, that's exactly what it is. If he could or Richard Branson. Or, yeah. Oh, jeez, yeah. Oh, don't. I've already ranted this week recording about him wanting his staff to work eight weeks unpaid while he faffs around in space. Yeah. If we compare, oh. if we can uh, combine Balotelli and uh, Branson, do you think he'll set off fireworks in the middle of space? That I would pay to see that. <laughs> <laughs> I would. Oh dear, that'll be amusing. Um, 
so we're so, so you're right uh, there's a lot of kind of balmy ideas floating about but a lot of them are being done and being tried um so athens wins its first test which is to convince the greeks to stay um amazingly the athenians being the dominant naval force that they were becoming uh they hadn't quite reached the heights they will reach later in the century uh we're talking at the beginning of the fifth century now mm. um but they were still well respected they had the most amount of um ships so they made up the majority of the force um of the naval fleet uh but they didn't get to command it command was given to a spartan who were just awful sailors i was gonna say renowned uh, <laughs> for the seagoing capabilities no, they weren't great, um, and actually, they never become very good. At, very good at it at all. Um, but it was given to a Spartan commander basically because people, the Greeks wanted to be led by a Spartan. That's fundamentally what it came down to. I suppose you do want Gerard Butler right at the front with his rippling twelve pack or whatever, don't you? That looks pretty badass to the enemy. Uh, precisely. Yeah. Pre- that couldn't have said a more accurate word. Uh, <laughs> so I mean, these the, the, the ships themselves. So I, ha- I have actually seen one of these ships. I've, you know, I've been, went to Athens a couple of years ago, and you know, visited the kind of harbour side, and they've got a, a, a made-up trireme down there. I think it might be in dry dock now, but it was on the water uh, at the time. And it's so I can I can visualise what one of these ships looks like, but the battle itself, um, you know, I can't. You know, it's not Trafalgar, is it? It's not lines of ships going careering into each other or. Oh, no, no, it's, pre- it's precisely that. Uh, as an aside, I don't know if you can at the moment, but you certainly used to be able to do a summer holiday where you could row that ship. Oh, wow. Um, I know people who have done it. I think they've regretted it afterwards. <laughs> um, but very exciting at the time, I'm sure. Um, so, yeah, uh, visualising the battle becomes quite difficult um, because the ship we're talking about is what's called a trireme. Right. So a trireme is fundamentally a battering ram on the sea. Ultimately, was designed to do. Um, it's uh, about 170 rowers uh, rowing for their lives, getting as much momentum as they can, and you're aiming to hit the side or the rear of an enemy ship um, to either neutralize it. You can't really sink a trireme, so you kind of neutralize the trireme, or you get stuck in it, and then you use grappling hooks, and then you board. So we can kind of uh, reconstruct how individual triremes would have fought uh, and there are tactics we know about uh, to go into in a minute, um, which work for individual triremes. What's really hard to reconstruct is how an entire fleet fought another fleet. You know, this idea of tactical movements, strategic engagements is so hard to reconstruct. It's almost fanciful. So at Salamis, basically, the Greeks decided to pick an area that was actually quite constrained and it forced the uh, Persians through a funnel, fundamentally. So their large numbers were neutralized, very much like the Battle of Thermopylae, um, which is, you know, uh, and the past there. So you neutralize numbers and you bring all the ships together. And of course, also, when, you, when ships are being rowed or sailed or whatever it is in large numbers in a confined area, you reduce the space between them. This creates a compact area, which makes it a lot easier to hit them with the batter with your uh, ram. The second thing it does is it kills their ability to maneuver. So this is ultimately what happens. Um, the Athenians lead the attack um, directly at the Persian fleet, which is now in this kind of bottleneck around Salamis. And uh, because Athenian triremes are smaller, 
They're designed to be slightly smaller than others. They're very fast. They're very agile. Um, and they're capable of backing water and um, uh, going again to round very quickly, uh, unlike many others. So ultimately, the way I kind of visualize Salamis is you've got this um, large group of Persian ships really unable to do very much and almost like bees flying in and out, in and out, uh, almost like well, more like wasps, I suppose, uh, going out, making a hit, coming out, going back in, coming out, going back in and causing chaos. And what it is, it's, it's not so much the Athenian triremes that are winning the day. It is the chaos they are creating. That is what. So as ships try to get away, they try to turn, they then bash into other ships. Um, and it is just a chaotic mess. And that's why it's so hard to reconstruct. Um, so those that aren't uh, being neutralized and, uh, and um, put out of action by this are being uh, are having grappling hooks thrown across. People are then boarding. Every trireme in the Greek force conventionally has roughly 14 Marines, 10 uh, kind of spearmen, mm -hmm. uh, and usually about four archers. That's not very right. many, is it? You know, not you, many you, at you, all. You're talking about you know dozens and dozens of, of rowers and you know just a you know, handful, or a couple of handfuls of soldiers like that. Yeah, this is exactly it, and this is why this kind of tells us just how much uh, Greek naval tactics was about ramming. Yeah, not so much about um, boarding. It used to be. It's what Thucydides, um, our historian for the Peloponnesian War, uh, major conflict towards the end of the fourth, uh, fifth century. Thucydides describes boarding and fighting along the decks as old-fashioned combat. He specifically tells us it's the old-fashioned way of fighting. Mm. Um, he uses this usually to insult the Corinthians, uh, who he says still use this tactic. So they still use this old-fashioned way of fighting. Um, rather conveniently, the Corinthians then start beating Athens at sea. So there's a lot going on as to why he's saying this. So, uh, yeah, there aren't many Marines at all, but the ones that are there are doing a very good job, yeah. um, especially at Salamis. Um, and it is um, brutal. It is brutal fighting. So we can't fill in many of the gaps on the tactical movements. This ain't Trafalgar. Yeah. Um, but what we do have, unusually, very unusually, for Greek history, we have an eyewitness. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it's um, Aeschylus. Aeschylus is most famous as a tragedian, a writer of tragedy. Um, and he, we know that not only was he a veteran, he was a military veteran of Athens, we know that, um, but we also know he was at Salamis. Um, not 100% sure where he was at Salamis, if he was on a boat, uh, sorry, one of the ships, one of the boats, or on an island where there was a small land skirmish. Um, but he wrote a play a play called The Persians, which is about the Battle of Salamis told through the eyes of the Persians. So the entire play is based in the Persian court. And it's the mother of Xerxes is one of the main characters. And she's basically waiting to hear about what's happening in Greece, what's happening to her son Xerxes and things like that. So she gets the report of what happens at Salamis. And Aeschylus's description is... Um, blood curdling and really really emotive 
you know, he describes bodies floating around. He describes the blood in the sea. He describes, you know, the froth of the sea lapping up the blood of the dead and all this kind of thing. It is, um, it's an amazing piece of writing to read when you realise he was there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, lucky. I wish I wish I could give you a blow by blow uh, account. We can't even I mean, to give to give you an idea of how difficult this is. The Greeks themselves don't really agree on what happened. I think so often because of things like um, Trafalgar, Waterloo, uh, then later on the Somme and things like this. I think we get so stuck on um this idea of, well, we know what happened there almost minute by minute. Is it Gettysburg? Uh, or one of the battles in the American Civil War where they can literally reconstruct minute by minute what's going on. Yeah. Whereas in ancient warfare, it's just chaos. And I think you need to embrace the fog of war, you know, which obviously so many modern writers talk about. And yeah. with ancient warfare, we just got to accept this. This fog of war. Um, the Athenians very much won the day, according to Athens. You know, no one else really gets a, a go. It's just Athens sorting it all out, saving Greece. This becomes a real part of their national myth. The Corinthians, another major naval power in Greece, are pretty much ignored from the official story told by Herodotus. Now, Herodotus most likely got his story from Athenians. So they cut out the Corinthians from the story. But actually, if you start to piece together really disparate evidence, there's like an inscription um, of a monument that was raised by the Corinthians to honor their dead at the battle. There was, um, you know, there's little snippets and other writers saying, oh, and there's this other version of events that the Corinthians actually did a lot at the battle. Um, but problem is, so I can tell you the Corinthians probably were involved, probably heavily involved. God knows what they were doing because hmm. our sources do not tell us. Let's talk a little bit more generally then. So you've mentioned Athens have got 50% of the fleet at Salamis, um, that they've got smaller, lighter, faster ships, and they're sort of the, the largest dominant naval force. But they didn't design these ships, and there's beef about who did, isn't there? And as usual, it's people being bigoted. Um, the reason yeah. people believe the wrong uh, story. Yeah. There's snobbery all over the place here, isn't there? Yeah. Everyone's having a dig at each other. Yeah. Well, this is it. Um I mean, you mentioned snobbery. I suppose it's one of those things that will come up again and again today, I think. Um, the other thing about snobbery is most are, well, all our writers are rich yeah. men. Um, so there's a lot of snobbery going on. Uh, absolutely. So the trireme, yeah, the trireme is not a Greek invention um, or the design. It's not a Greek design. Um, it, it's kind of hard to work out who did design it. The general consensus is it's most likely the Phoenicians. So the Phoenicians are a, uh, a renowned maritime culture from sort of Lebanon, that kind of region um, in sort of West Asia. Um, they are most likely the people um, who designed what we would consider a trireme. Now, the Greeks weren't going to have any of that. Oh, typical, isn't it? What, a brown person did that? No, it's like the, the whole pyramids thing. Well, it must be aliens. It can't have been Egyptians. Yeah. White man didn't do it. Aliens did it. <laughs> This was on another podcast we did. Yeah. Uh, well, you're just not wrong. Uh, it is kind of as simple as that. Um, so the Greek tradition, again, Thucydides is the one that kind of lays it out for us, um, is the Corinthians designed it. Um, it. It was just, they designed it. No no other explanation. It was just, they were the ones that designed it. And then we move on. 
Now, if you're going to give benefit of the doubt, which I don't advise, but if you were going to give benefit of the doubt, you might say that might reflect the fact that they were the they may have adapted the design for what the Greeks used or something along those lines. But ultimately, no, this is not a Greek design. It's, it, it is a very popular ship design in especially the Eastern Mediterranean and the Greeks um, adopt it as is normal. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Um, so, yeah, uh, this is ultimately what it comes down. So actually, when it comes to the Persian Wars, you know, I mentioned the Athenians, the Athenians are fast um, sailors. They have slightly smaller uh, triremes than everyone else in Greece, uh, specifically designed that way. We are told that for the Persians, their greatest asset of their navy were the Phoenicians. So we are told explicitly that the Phoenicians were the greatest sailors. They are the greatest um, maritime force the Persians have. And at um, Salamis, there is a, even a direct moment where uh, the Athenians and the um, Phoenicians kind of go head to head. We're also told the Egyptians um, are very involved at Salamis as well. Um, they lose a lot of ships, they lose a lot of men. Um, the Egyptians and the Athenians bear the brunt of the, um, the losses at Salamis. So, so who's, who's pulling the oars then on these ships? Because I must admit, when I think of these ramming ships, I'm, I'm drifting into um, Charlton Heston in a loincloth kind of uh, <laughs> Im images. Are we all? Is it slaves, is that, I guess, is my question, really? Or, or citizens or... Who? Right. Um, basically, the answer is not it's not slaves if they can help it. Um, we do have this kind of idea of the slave uh, road galley, you know, yeah. that kind of image of, of it. Uh, you know, why would a, a freeman or, you know, why would a freeman want to row a ship? But um, in Athens, where most of our evidence for this is from, uh, it's not the case at all. Uh, the enslaved do not row the ships. Uh, it is rowed by the poorest of citizens. They are the ones rowing it. Um, it's actually the fact that citizens row it and not the enslaved is quite indicative of the Athenian ideology of war. So the Athenian ideology of war is closely connected to their ideas of masculinity. So to be a man, you must be able to perform in war. Otherwise, you have not fulfilled your role as a man. Simple so it's kind of like you don't want to... You wouldn't want to leave that responsibility to a mere slave. Yes. Yeah, exactly that. Um, and then the other, the flip side of this as well, the other side of that coin is so masculinity. But of course, this is all tied in with citizenship, civic identity and civic duty. So to be a citizen, you have to perform in war. However, land battles in Greece are predominantly uh, quite heavily kitted. Uh, it's quite expensive mm. to be, especially in a phalanx, the kind of hoplite, Figure. I mean, there are ways to be in the line when you haven't got a lot of money. You can have people pay for equipment for you. You could be quite under-equipped. There are ways, but it's expensive. So you're expected to turn up with all your own gear. No one, like the state doesn't give that to you. No, 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 no. You're not state-funded at all. Uh, it's all personal. It's all um, your own creation. Like I say, we do have a couple of examples where rich men in Athens went out and bought extra equipment for people. Yeah. So they could hand it out to poorer people um, when they needed to. But no, ultimately, it's your responsibility to come fully equipped. Um, even with your rations, you have to provide your own three days of rations if you're going to go on a muster uh, and campaign. Um, so so I mean, 
Or you have to go and row because you don't need anything with you. This is precisely it. The poor row because they can afford to row. And it means that you can therefore still fulfill your masculine duty. You have performed in war and you can still fulfill your civic duty. You have performed in war. So um, for that reason, we don't see the enslaved row ships. Um, the moment we do hear about enslaved people rowing ships in Athens is towards the end of the Peloponnesian War at a battle called Arginusai. So it's a naval battle against the Spartan-led um, allies against them. Um, and uh, we are told that slaves rowed the ships for the Athenians basically because they're running out of numbers. They can't afford to pay all these different people to row the ships. They're running out of um, citizens to go to the oars. They have to use slaves to do it. And what's quite revealing is that in response to them rowing those ships, those slaves were then given their freedom. Okay. So that was basically, it's almost a compromise. You can't have, when you've, when you've got a culture that, in, uh, uh, you've got a culture that at its very core expects military service and civic identity to go together. And you've got to give these slaves something. In yeah. Exactly that. Exactly that. Otherwise you undermine your entire ideology. Um, that's exactly what they do so no slaves are not predominantly rowing the ships it, it is the poor elements of society now it's possible that you could take along one of your slaves to row with you yeah I mean, you could do that uh, but you still had to row right you couldn't just pass it along no no um and like i say uh remembering that most of our authors most of our sources are rich men and yeah. only the poor row ships um, this also might go some way to explain why our evidence doesn't really talk about naval battle in much detail. Well, let's talk about these rich guys. So Plato, snob, Aristophanes, snob. They take the royal piss out of these poor guys rowing, don't they? They don't have a very good reputation. No, they do not have a good reputation at all. Um, Plato basically says they're all cowards. Um, who have created a ideology of war which allows them to run away, which is the antithesis of the hoplite, the Greek heavy infantryman who's supposed to just stand their ground and not leave the battle lines. So he says this in no uncertain terms that basically rowers, marines, they're scum. Aristophanes uh, in his comedies, uh, it's quite an interesting moment because he, he definitely takes the mick out of them. But, of course, many of the audience would have also been poorer members of society. Mem members of the audience would have rowed. So you've also got to appreciate that when he's taking the mick out of them, there's also a sense of laughing at yourself. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, the classic is because the trireme is kind of uh, layered in its rowers. So you have a top layer of rowers. You then have a group that's inset. And then you have a group kind of at the bottom. So, uh, you know, the people at the bottom are the poorest. Uh, and of course, if you're on a ship rowing for hours on end, um, sweating buckets because there's no real air movement under the deck. Um, and of course, there's no toilet breaks. So Aristophanes makes the joke about uh, the people at the bottom being farted on and being shat on. Nice. Um, so, yeah, there, there is very much this is not a place you want to be. Um, 
So I suppose getting getting teams out for like training weekends and stuff, you probably didn't have too many too many takers for those ones then. No, no, uh, you wouldn't. Uh, this is not a team building exercise. Charlton Heston's agent. Uh, he will not be shat on in the filming of this scene. <laughs> My client says no. It's a whole different kind of film, and he's not into it. No, <laughs> not for at least a grand or more a day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so- but is it somewhat justified? Are they a bit? They're not very good at practicing, are Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. No, so, there, yeah, there is kind of flip sides where, um, I mean, there is some validity to some of the comments made. Um, they are perceived as quite lazy um my favorite example to use when people like in the public eye people build up greek warfare as like this kind of everyone coming together to be a common evil the persians and all this you know um uh, a sense of unity and uh, my example to kind of counteract that is the battle of lade which is a naval battle where it's about a week before the battle actually happens and the naval commander makes the logical decision to practice um and all the crew say no we don't want to so they basically sunbathe instead um and rather unfortunately for them they lose the battle um and this is it (laughs) one of the difficulties uh, any greek commander has to deal with is the fact that they are not dealing with professional combatants they're not dealing with professional fighters um actually the one area this does change in greek warfare is at sea that changes at the turn of the uh, into the fourth century where it becomes more professionalized but at, at this point which is sort of 490s uh now everyone's an amateur um and if they don't want to do it you can't make them do it um so th- there is that um the other thing to consider with this is there are 200 people roughly on a trireme right athens has approximately a strength of 200 triremes. Now, that's my maths is terrible. A lot of... Um, that's, no, mine as well. So to add all the zeros, that's 40,000? 40, 40, 40, 40, yeah. 40, yeah. Are there that many people in Athens? Uh, Athens has quite a large demographic. Okay. It does have quite a large demographic. But that gives you an idea. To have a fully manned fleet, you need 40,000 people. And you've got a land war going on. And you've got land warfare going on as well. Um, a Greek uh, Athenian army, an Athenian army that's mustered, the largest we ever hear about is 20,000. Wow. Okay. 
hoplites, which is like this creme de la creme of Athenian ideas. Uh, this is where you're kind of um, wealthier man would try and serve if he could. Um, the largest number we ever hear about is 13,000. So poorest elements of society, you need up to about 40,000 to man the triremes. Greek land army, they're kind of what you and I might call kind of an upper middle class. Uh, they can't muster more than 13,000. The rich are grossly outnumbered by the poor in the Navy. They really can't make them do what they want, can they? Really can't make them do what they want. And what we actually see uh, towards the end of the uh, fifth century is this idea that the Navy is basically the, the bedrock of democracy because that's your, that's your majority, that's your voting majority of men of age who are allowed to vote. It's the Navy. So Plato, for instance, and many philosophers um, have this belief. Uh, Plato, Aristotle, people like this did not like democracy. No. Because it took things away from them as richer people. All right. So they didn't like that. They didn't like sharing um, a say in how to run the state with stupid poor people who fart on each other. So, so, so with that in mind, sorry, just because you've come on and talked about commemoration before. Um, do you, and I don't recall us talking about rowers um, in the same way that kind of soldiers were commemorated. Is, is there any kind of comparison between the two and, and how rowers were commemorated on, um, on memorials in, in Athens? So. Basically, the answer is no. Um, there is no direct evidence at all that rowers are commemorated. Now, the problem is, because I've talked about this on this show, um, we talked about casualty lists, the list of the dead for the year during war, and they get inscribed on this um, uh, stone um, with their names along with everyone else from their um, tribe. It's where our war memorials come from, isn't it? Yeah, it's exactly where our war memorials come from. Um, well, frustratingly, those names are only ever the first name, uh, which can become quite difficult. So basically, imagine going to a war memorial where everyone, everyone called John is just written as John and then trying to work out, well, which John's which? Um, you know, so the war, the, they don't have any markers of um, status. They don't have any markers of their service, usually. We see that change in the fourth in the fourth century where the cavalry are kind of set apart as well sometimes you might get a um a strategos a general marked out as being one but usually it's just names so we have no idea so there's a bit of a debate are the rowers on these lists or aren't they um common consensus now is maybe which is not um, very set in stone um however we have got one example which I argue, many people argue, is proof of someone who served in them uh, as a marine, right? Um, and that's uh, Democlides, um, who his monument is beautiful monument, um, where uh, and now because the paint's worn off, all most monuments, statues in ancient Greece are painted. Mm. Uh, so the paint has worn off. So what there is now is very um, almost a couple of feet of just blank stone. And then in the corner is a carved trireme, the front of a trireme. And on it is the dead man sat at the front, basically looking uh, sad. He is mourning 
presumably his own life. Behind him is his military equipment, but he's not wearing it. And then the top right-hand corner, the very top, squeezed into the top right-hand corner rather than across the whole top like normal. It just says his name and his dad's name. And that's it. And it's just um, a beautifully poignant monument for uh, what we assume to be a Marine because of the iconography, because of the trireme, because of the military accoutrement next to him, uh, the helmet, the shield, the spear, kind of suggests uh, a Marine, um, what we call the Nautai, uh, literally those on the sea, uh, where we get nautical from as a word. Um, so yeah, to that extent, they oh, we don't really know. They might be on the lists. They might not be on the lists. They should be. I, um, in terms of democratic ideology, they should be on yeah. that list. Um, but we just do not know. Uh, and there's no real way of finding out as it stands. Um, going back to the issues of the source material, one of the things about the fact that the Navy are the poorer elements, the fact that the Navy are basically the, the bedrock of democracy. Um, to a lot of our writers, like Plato, the next step in the evolution of politics from democracy was what he called ochlocracy, which is the rule of the mob. So it's mob rule. That's why he didn't like democracy. He thinks the next step is mob rule. Now, the ochlos, mob, is also often used to describe the Navy. Uh, the rowers, the poorer elements of society, they're often just referred to as the mob. Um, so again, that gives you kind of an idea of how low a standing they're held in. You've mentioned the Peloponnesian War. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about that. Was that so that was started because of a naval threat against Athens. So over time, did their supremacy wind down or is this just an instance of someone challenging it? The, it's, it is an instant of them being challenged and challenging other people's authority on the sea. Um, so by this point, the outbreak of the uh, Peloponnesian War is, so we're in the 430s now. So we're a good 50 years after the Persian Wars. Athens, after the Persian Wars, has created somewhat of an empire for itself. An empire runs mainly due to the strength of its navy. Um, the outbreak of the Peloponnesian War, we are told, um, is because the Athenians decide to try and create an alliance with the island of Corsaira, which is modern Corfu. Now, Corsaira had a very powerful navy not the size of Athens, about half the size of Athens. But if you combine those two navies together, you had a force that no other Greek city-state could even get close to matching. Not even close. Um, so Corinth, another naval power, uh, panicked. You cannot allow that to happen. So basically, uh, the outbreak of the Peloponnesian War is Corinth having a na naval battle 
against Corsaira to stop the Athenians absorbing that navy into their own. So the outbreak of the Peloponnesian War is not Athens and Sparta, which is how lots of people visualize the war. They think Sparta and Athens are loggerheads. It's they not more Gerard Butler, don't they? Yeah, they want more Gerald Butler, whereas actually what they need is more triremes. Mm. We all just need more triremes in our lives. Um, and this happens a few times during the pandemic. There's real concerns with other city-states that Athens could expand their naval power even more. Um, there's concerns with Mytilene as well. You know, there are numerous city-states with pretty strong navies. And if Athens could get their hands on it, basically that would be the death toll or the death knell for Greek independence. Um, remembering that Athens is an expanding empire at this point. But, this, but it doesn't go well for Athens, does it? I mean, they, they don't, it's almost the kind of beginning of the end for the Athenian empire, this, this start. I don't I kind of thought they probably spent too much money building the Parthenon and should have got on with um, building some warships personally. But um, I, Where's it's it funny you wrong? should say that. It's funny you should say they spent a lot of money on warships. Okay. <laughs> uh, made all the more difficult by the fact that Attica doesn't really have a lot of trees. Um, oh, so actually securing wood was a serious concern for the Athenians. That's why they spent a lot of time in the north of Greece around Thrace, which is kind of moving into uh, modern northern Greece and uh, almost into uh, northern, still into the Balkans. Um it's going up, way up to Macedonia, isn't it? Into Bulgaria, yeah. sort of kind of area. It's the it's that kind of uh, that woodland is what they needed for their fleet. Um, so always there are these concerns, um, but ultimately they put every penny they could into it if they could. You know, they they build two hundred ships as fast as they can, and then maintain that. So even when they lose uh, a ship's capacity or a ship uh, needs to be basically retired, um, they're replacing them constantly. Um, and whilst doing that, engaging in naval combat time and time again. So um, incurring more losses and replacing those ships over and over and over again or fixing them up or whatever it is they need to do. Um, but yeah, uh, what we see in the Peloponnesian War is Athens at its naval height and then at, at its decline. So at the beginning of the Peloponnesian War, there's a commander by the name of Formio. He's a, um, a naval commander, spends most of his time in the um, Corinthian Gulf, dealing with the naval fleet of Corinth. Um, and he spends about two, three years offering a masterclass in naval tactics for the Greek world. It's just it's an amazing um, set of campaigns he undertakes um, with like 20 ships and like nothing more. Um, so we see at that end, but if you're constantly being battered by smaller numbers of ships like Corinth were, they need to adapt. They need to change what they're doing. Um, so they actually modify their trireme. They redesign the trireme. Uh, they know they can't outpace the trireme of the Athenians. So they reinforce it instead. They make it stronger. They make it harder to hit and they make, uh, make it uh, less likely to get damaged if they ram another ship. And what we actually see is this neutralizes a lot of the Athenian threat. The Athenians are now too afraid to properly engage with them. So this is quite a turning point in Greek naval battle. Um, it happens about 413. So it's the second half of the Peloponnesian War. And from that period onwards, Athens is in decline. Um, 
Corinth, Syracuse, which is a city-state in Sicily, all of them are starting to have victories against the Athenians, which had never really happened before. Sparta still hasn't got a navy of its own. It relies <laughs> on Corinth. It relies on its allies to do its job for it. But they realise to beat the Athenians, they need more ships. They're not very good at getting more ships. So they knock on the door of a very rich neighbour. And that very rich neighbour are the Persians. All right? The supposed traditional enemy of the Greeks from 60, 70 years ago, Spartans are now going, can you give us some money so that we can build ships so that we can beat the, the Athenians? It's the Spartans, on yeah. yeah, they are. Um, and I'll be honest, Greek uh, Greek politics from then onwards uh, into what's called the Corinthian War, which is at the, uh, is the beginning of the fourth century, is literally Sparta going, "Can I have a fleet, please?" Persia paying for it. Athens going, "Oh, I want a fleet. I'll go to Persia." Persia pays for their fleet. Um, I was talking to a historian who basically at one point. You basically get a Persian-funded fleet fighting a Persian-funded fleet, which was funded to fight an earlier Persian-funded fleet from each side. So they're constantly going to the Persians for money to get more ships. And the Persians have worked out they don't care who wins. They just want the Greeks fighting themselves. Um, and they basically uh, play everyone for fools. Um, and ultimately, this comes back to kind of uh, Lockie's point, which is the cost. This is so expensive, but it's so important to control Greece. It's so important to control all the islands in the Aegean and all these kind of powerful positions that you need to control if you want an empire, if you want security. You need a fleet. And if you ain't got money, you need a rich best friend. And so they all go to the Persians. That is mad. <laughs> Tactically, though, I mean, these. how do these... these... I know it's difficult, isn't it, to, to kind of know for sure about tactics, but there were certain techniques that we that we know. Formio, I've heard I've heard of Formio. He was the one. Um, oh, what is it? Uh, the um, Peloponnesian fleet goes into like a circle with all their bows pointing outward and says, "Come at us!" Uh, and so he he runs around them, squeezing them in until they all crash into each other. That's the one. That's the um, one. This is this is the height of Greek naval tactics. Um, yeah. So the circle, the circle position is a is predominantly a defensive position. Um, so you basically turn the ship so that the rams are pointing outwards, and everyone uh, the back of every ship is pointing inwards in a circle. You basically create like a almost like a hedgehog. If you want to think yeah. of it like that, um, and it's called a kouklos, literally circle. So um, we see this. We see it against the Persians. Uh, the Greek fleet does it at Artemisium. They create a kouklos. Um, and then as the Persians start to circle around them, which, of course, is the only way to really think about what to do, you start to circle them. Um, the kouklos then erupts in action. And on a set signal, everyone fires out from the center in every single direction and causes mayhem. That's the basic plan. Now, Formio obviously knows this. This is a normal tactic. He knows that's going to happen. So what he does is he instigates a uh, almost like a, a counter uh, maneuver. Um, he creates a problem for the fleet that's in the circle. So the Corinthian fleet form up in a kouklos. He starts to circle around them. Um, and you're absolutely right. What he does is uh, the lead ship starts to constrict that circle. It contracts. 
on the Kuklos to the point where the Kuklos has to um, get smaller and smaller and smaller. And whilst they're doing that, they're bashing into each other. That's dangerous, isn't it? Because you, your flank's exposed to the to the to the circle. I don't know. It seems like it's really it's dangerous. It's mad. It's like so. It seems like everything we do know about Greek naval tactics is that they're very risky to your. It's not like this whole sort of cat and mouse between the main fleets in World War One, where you don't want to ruin your ships. It's just a fun fight, and you hope you come out on top. Uh, yes and no. Uh, when com- <laughs> when the decision to engage happens, yeah. I mean, people might try, you know, you might get other people on here trying to say that it's uh, it's more complicated than that. It's not. Uh, <laughs> it's absolute chaos. Um, however, what we see as a result, and is actually indicative of Greek approaches to warfare generally, is they're risk averse. They don't like engaging. So a lot of military action, a lot of military manoeuvres are for show. They're to make statements, political statements, military statements. But actually, when it comes... This is where we wind Chris right up and go, oh, like the Germans. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's just prestige, isn't it? It's Uh, national jewellery. Indeed. Oh, dear. Um, So, yeah, they are risk-averse. So, um, I mean, for instance, at Artemisium, there's Herodotus, describes uh, the debates from both the Persians and the Greeks about what on earth should we do? Because ultimately they don't want to engage. That's not what they want to do. Um, They're trying to, there's a lot of things going on, which is, you know, uh, how can you maximize your strategic position without necessarily having to uh, threaten your own ships? Uh, Could you get away with a skirmish? Can you exploit a weakness uh, quick enough to ensure safety among everyone else? Um, Can you save face? Could you actually leave and leave without being accused of, of running away? Uh, this is another concern we see time and again. Um, so, yeah, it, uh, they are risk averse. They, 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 they don't want to go and lose uh, hundreds of men to the sea. They don't want to lose their ships. Um, ships because they're expensive. Men, because these are citizens. These are your voting public. Um, especially in Athens, every single military engagement or military campaign is voted for by the public. So the people who are rowing are the people who voted to go and row. So if you are um, basically a daredevil commander, you know, sort of charging into every forlorn, uh, you know, leading every forlorn hope you possibly can think of, uh, people won't vote for you and your ideas in, uh, in the assembly. Um, you will not get these men back on the ships. So there is real concern because uh, citizens are valuable. Ultimately, that is it. They're one of the most valuable commodities these city-states have. Um, and is quite an interesting um, knock-on effect to this thing about the fact that the enslaved are not the ones rowing the ships. Mm. It sounds I mean, like a freaking nightmare. Like it's, It sounds like what's going on after the Russian Revolution where they're giving orders in the Russian army and they're taking a vote on whether to follow them or not, and it's a nightmare. There is some, the the comparison has some validity. I mean, we we have quite a few examples of troops refusing to follow orders. Um, The Athenian army, uh, the Argive army, the Theban army, basically every army but the Spartan army can't really discipline their men. Um, So if they say no, you go, oh, damn. Um, And your only real... Your only real uh, reproach that you can do 
uh, comes at the end of the campaign when you go back home. So then you can accuse people of things. Then you can accuse them of cowardice. You can accuse them of running away. You can accuse them of shirking their duties. But you can't really do it on the field. You can't really do it in the ships um, because they have as much right as you do. They are and you you are equals in that way. There is some similarity here with the um, with the Russians. Um, you know, how do you discipline someone who you have no actual authority over? Yes, we are absolutely we are not running history hat like this. I can tell you that hard <laughs> enough it is. Uh, let's just round off. Um, this has been so much fun. I love it. Uh, let's just round off by talking about we've we've tried really hard, haven't we, to cover the the rank and file and talk about the everyman rowing the boats. But Lockie's mentioned Formio. There's personalities, isn't there? Who are who are the badasses that you love? Well, Formio. For in terms of naval commanders, Formio is definitely um, my uh, my favourite. Can I have favourites? Yeah, I can have favourites. Yeah, yeah, of course you can. If you've spent the time writing a book, you can absolutely have favourites. Well, I'll tell you what, we haven't talked about Trafalgar enough and I haven't used enough <laughs> hyperbole. Formio is the Nelson of the hey, Greek there, we <laughs> <laughs> there we go. I said it. I said it. it. Take that, reviewer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. Angry noises somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, what did what did the reviewer say? You tried to make out it was the Trafalgar over and yes, over. Yes, yeah, basically everything is a Trafalgar. It's trying to find a Trafalgar. Um, Which is cool because it only took you 30 seconds on this podcast to say, well, I don't really know anything because there's no <laughs> evidence. I mean, we talked for an hour afterwards, but it's not like it's not like you went straight for the brag, is it? No, precisely. Um, <laughs> and ultimately, it's, it's one of those things, isn't it, where writing history for the public, you know, you can't write a book that says, and then they died and that's the end of the chapter you know like people want to know what happened you know yeah. and you've got to do your best with it um but yeah uh where were we oh yeah formio definitely formio i love formio um the other i suppose the interesting thing is the spartans like i say they have no real naval power but they do have a naval commander what's called a nauarch or a navarch literally uh leader of the navy or leader of the ships um this is a political position, but because they don't really respect naval warfare very much, um, they kind of hand really? it out to their favourites. <laughs> yeah. uh, they often hand it out to their favourites, which is not conducive to a good commander. Um, so what we often find with the Spartans, especially in the Peloponnesian War, is they're doing quite well, and then they change commander. They change the Nauarch in charge. And then they put in charge an incompetent idiot who's probably never really spent any time on a trireme. Um, a classic for this is there's a Spartan commander called Lysander. Now, Lysander is basically the... Ter he, if you're going to say one person turned the tide of the Peloponnesian War, it's Lysander. Lysander, basically, he's the guy who could go into a Persian court and convince them to give him loads of money. Lysander's the guy who could convince men to run through brick walls for him. He's that kind of character. Um, and he bec he's becoming quite a military hero for the Spartans. Anything he touches turns to victory. Um, and he starts to win on the sea. He starts to actually have victories over the Athenians. This is kind of unprecedented uh, to continuously defeat the Athenians at sea. Um, and he's doing so well for a year, which is how long you get to be a Nauarch, and then they replace him. Which, if you think of it from a professional military system, that's a stupid thing to do. <laughs> These are not good at the job. See ya. Yeah. 
you are basically they are they create an atmosphere of professional amateurism which is quite indicative of greek warfare um the people in charge are generally amateurs um so he leaves and he's quite a funny guy he's quite a spiteful guy um so when he leaves he takes all of the persian uh connections he's made with him basically um and then he says well if you want the persians to keep paying you you have to go talk to them yourself <laughs> i'm not doing it did he take the money as well that'd be even uh no he gave the money back <laughs> uh, you don't want to be accused of taking persian money personally uh, you can end up being um exiled but so he basically gives it back rather than giving it to the next spartan commander um and it all goes downhill from there this is where athens actually has a resurgence on the sea the battle of Arginusai, which they win um occurs during this period so uh, Lys- uh lysander's reputation is just so brilliant his story is so amazing he ends up becoming a lover of the spartan king agesilaos his entire life story is amazing um the spartans do realize that they kind of messed up but you can't override spartan law that easily you know you're only allowed to be commander for a year so they end up making him like a vice admiral, you know, vice commander uh, as a way of getting around this. So he becomes a um, almost like a, an advisor to the next commander, not the one that replaced him. He died. Uh, the one after he basically becomes a, 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 an advisor to him. But in reality, Lysander has been given back the fleet. That's really what's happened. He is now back in charge of the fleet in all but name. He gets the Persian money back. Um, and then that basically um, sees the complete decline of the Athenian resistance. Um, and it's Lysander who basically takes Athens um, after destroying their naval command of the Aegean. He then takes the city of Athens uh, and convinces people not to burn it. Well, the Spartans <laughs> generally convince people not to burn it. Um, so, uh, yeah, Lysander is definitely going to be another character uh, to always keep an eye on with these kind of things. That is awesome. Well, um, we kind of need to wrap up uh, now, but this has been brilliant. And if people have enjoyed hearing about these ancient Greek non-Trafalgars, sort of Trafalgars, (laughs) your book is out there, isn't it? Great Naval Battles of the Ancient Greek World. Um, We'll get Matt to put a link in the podcast to the bookshop so that people can buy it. Uh, along with everybody on Santorini, where it is on sale, because that's awesome. <laughs> that's very nice of you. <laughs> oh, you are awesome. This is it. This is box ticked for ancient boaty stuff this week. Boom. Brilliant. Thank you, Owen. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.